Amen. You know, I, I'm thankful for individuals that love the Word of God. They say that you can tell someone's love for God. You know, Sunday, this, it's easy to get to church on Sunday. But on midweek Bible study night, where's the depth of your commitment? And I have to thank the Lord for uh, individuals that are committed to the Word of God. Amen. A couple of announcements. All church prayer will be next Monday, already November, November 2nd at 7 o'clock p.m. And then next Tuesday night at 6.15, we'll have our soul praise. Looking forward to, uh, to that. Amen. Memory verses for the week. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Going to be a memory verse. I love this scripture. To wit, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I'm so thankful for that verse. Well, that's going to mean a lot more to us by the time that this series is done. And then John chapter 8, verse 24, I said, therefore, unto you, ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. I, I don't want to die in my sins. I want to live victoriously in this life and prepare for the life to come. Jesus is coming soon. And I, I tell you, it depends on who you talk to. If, if, if their candidate gets in, then uh, they think Jesus is going to come back a little later. We don't know when he's coming back, but we know he's coming soon. I want to be ready to meet him. Amen. Now, we're going to get into a lesson series. I don't know how many series we'll, uh, lessons we'll have in this series. Uh, I'm going to uh, not go uh, three or four hours at a time because um, your mind can only comprehend what your seat can endure. And we're going to try to, to do our best to, uh, uh, to get some points across. I, I think this series of lessons will change your understanding of the Word of God. It will empower your prayer life. It will increase your faith when you understand the nature of God. And I, when we're going to go through some things, and I'm going to go through them, and I'm going to go through them again, and I'm going to go through them again, because it's repetition that helps us understand things. But we're going to go through a lot of Scripture. So I hope you brought a pen and paper. We're going to go, and we're going to go as slowly or as quickly as we need to get a point across, because I'm not looking at trying to get through and rush through material. I'm more concerned with getting it down in our heart and then giving you things to equip you with so that you can go back home. Because I'll tell you, we're not going to be judged based on my words. And we're not going to be judged based on the best book right now on the New York Times bestseller. Or I don't know if Christian books have a New York Times bestseller, but the Christian books bestseller, it, that's not going to be what I'm judged by. I'm going to be judged by this book right here. And so I have to be in alignment with the Word of God. And so we're going to talk about our God is one. Now, there are are some good references here for you. Uh, understand the Godhead by Brother Riggin. Everybody remember Brother Riggin? He's been in North Dakota a couple times. And um, years ago, you been family camp, he preached at. And then we have the Apostolic Foundations by Brother Crawford Kuhn, a dear elder. And then also the Oneness of God by David K. Bernard. Great resources, but obviously the best resource is going to be the Word of God. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. We're going to start uh, just laying some framework and defining some things. It uh, helps to know when you're playing a game. It helps to know the rules. Uh, you, you, you can't play Monopoly with a risk set of rules. Um, you, you, you can't play, I've, I've mentioned it before, you go to some people's house and like Catan. Everybody's got like house rules for Catan, you know? Uh, it's like, so you got to, you got to, uh, know the rules. But Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? That question that Jesus asks echoes to today. The question is, who do you say that I am? 
Jesus is interested in who you think he is. He's interested if he is Lord of all or if he's just a, uh, a good guy, if he was just a carpenter's son. Jesus is concerned with who you think he is. And so Simon looked at him and said, Thou art the Christ. We're going to talk about Christ, but that's the Messiah. And this is Peter, and a monotheistic Jew, being asked by the Lord, Who do you say I am? You are the Christ. You are the one that we were looking for. You are the one that we have read about in the Old Testament. There was an Old Testament of them. It was their Bible to them. But it was written about him. You are the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto, also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there are a couple things for us to understand about this conversation. First is the understanding of who Jesus is came by revelation from the Father. It came by an understanding that God would remove scales off of somebody's eyes and he would, he would unstop some deaf ears and he would allow people to uh, have a revelation. When we want to understand who Jesus is, it's going to take a revelation that comes from God. We, we, we pray about these things. We, we search the word of God for these things. Secondly, we have to realize that it's this revelation of who Jesus is that is the very foundation of the church. It's not an optional philosophy of what you think about Jesus. We're going to talk about the Godhead. The Godhead is simply a term that means the headquarters of God. It matters what you and I believe about the Godhead because it is what is the church is built on. I don't want a church that's built on faulty foundation. I don't want a church that's built on shifting sands. I, I want a church that's built on Christ, and he is that rock, and we need to understand what that means. And so the revelation of this is that the foundation of the church is built on our understanding of who Jesus is. So it matters. It matters today. It's not an optional philosophy. It, it's, it, this, this can't be something that you would say, well, you believe this way, and I'll believe my way. This is, this is not politics. The Word of God's not political. The Word of God's not up for debate. Forever, O oh Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. It's, it's done. So we don't twist the Word of God to fit into our framework. We have to twist our framework to fit in the word of God. We've got to change us. We can't be conformed to the world. We can't let the, the world conform our thinking and our, our belief system. We have to make sure we are rooted and grounded in truth. And that is the word of God. So, another great scripture. 1 Timothy 3.16. I, I have this up here. Some of them I don't have up here. But we're going to take the time... I, I really felt impressed in this entire lesson series to take the time to go to these scriptures and read them. Psalms 119, 130, the entrance of your words brings light and it gives understanding to the simple. There's something about just reading the word of God that is able to touch and, and change and affect someone's thinking. And so we're going to take the time to, to go here. And if you are a Bible marker, I would encourage you I would encourage you, a well-used Bible is a sign of a healthy saint. And it's okay to mark in your Bible. Now, some pens work better than others. I've got a pen on my office desk. It's a Micron pen, that little Pigma Micron. That's a great pen. But you want to mark up your Bible. You want to love this Bible. God's not going to be upset. You, we respect it. I, I, this, this is my favorite book. And so when you get a scripture, it'd be good to underline a scripture, circle the number of the verse, and use that so you can know where it's at in the word of God. But 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, great scripture, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up 
into glory. Now, this is a great verse. Without controversy, this actually is consistent of one Greek word, one word, rather, in the Greek language. And it means by the consent of all. And so that one Greek word can be translated by the consent of all. And by context of Paul's letter to Timothy, it's speaking of that which is believed on by all believers. So all believers back then needed to be on the same page and consent to a common belief and a common understanding. And if they needed to do it in the early church, we need to do it in the church today. Not, there has to be a, with no controversy, there's got to be a consent of all that there's one thing and one understanding that we have in common. Why is that important? Because it is the bedrock foundation of the church, and it is what allows us to not be overcome by the gates of hell. Let's go back to the gates of hell just for a moment. The gates of hell should not prevail. What that is saying is it's the gates of a city where the plans were made. It's the gates of a city where the uh, a commerce occurred and where deals were made and trades were made. And so what the Lord's trying to tell us is if we are built on a foundation of understanding in our heart and our mind who Jesus is, then the plans of hell won't thwart the plans of the church. That's a promise right there. When you understand the power of Jesus Christ and you understand the, the Godhead, how, how God headquartered himself, it allows you to withstand the plans of an enemy that's desiring to destroy your marriage, destroy your home, destroy your mind. And so, without controversy. And then he goes on to say, godliness. Now, Philip Schaff's popular commentary in the New Testament shows the word godliness is taken to mean the religion which men profess. Now, I, I borrowed this quote from Brother Riggin. He calls it the Riggin Revised Version. So I'm going to use the Riggin Revised Version for a moment. You could say, by the consent of all true believers, the basis of the Christian religion is the fact that God was manifest in the flesh. Let me say that again. By the consent of all true believers, I want to be a true believer, the basis of the Christian religion is the fact, without controversy, we're all consented to this, that God was manifest in the flesh. Man, what an amazing thing. I, I, I can't believe that, that God Almighty would manifest in the flesh. So, we're going to go to John chapter 8, verse 24. Now, John 8, 24, very important scripture. Jesus is speaking here. So, I said, therefore, unto you, that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. It matters who we understand Jesus to be. One of the things I think that this scripture ties to is tied to baptism. Because if I don't believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we're going to talk about this this whole series, but if I don't believe that, then it's going to affect how I'm baptized. The Bible says to be baptized in Jesus' name. There's one God. His name is, we're going to talk about all this, but Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am he, I am the I am, the great I, how many remember, I am that I am. Back in Moses and the burning bush, remember that? That's the same phrasing here, that I am he. Now, I'm going to bring up there, when you look at the Godhead, how did God headquarter himself? There are three different thoughts, three different things you can think about. In the Christian world, there is a doctrine called the Trinity. And it's commonly defined this way, three separate and distinct persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. Now, how many does that sound like to you? It sounds like three. Three, and this, this, this is actually, I'm going to show you a couple slides. I, I uh, typed it word for word verbatim from the, the, the source. Three separate 
and distinct persons. So, one, two, three. Three separate, three distinct persons. You like broccoli, you don't, and you like brown shoes. Three distinct, get your own ideas, your, your own uh, your own philosophies. Now, this is from a, a group. They are, they're, it's an apologetic group. Apologetics, I mean, we're not apologizing. Apologetics in the Christian um, uh, vernacular is defending, defending something that we believe in. We, we are apologetic. We have apologists on, on uh, the new birth. We have apologetics on, uh, on the principles of the Word of God, the doctrines, the doctrines we read about in the book of Hebrews. All these things are important. Anyway, there's the divine being, but one indivisible essence. In this one divine being, there are three persons or individual substances. Now, this is not my words. This is this is a, so you say, how many, uh, do you, you're Trinitarian, do you believe in three gods? No, I believe in one God. Okay, but this is a Trinitarian doctrine. It's three persons or individual substances, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. The substance and operation of the three persons in the divine being is marked by a certain definite order. There are certain personal attributes by which the three persons are distinguished. I can, can look at one person of the Trinity, and there's personal attributes. There's something about him that makes him different than the others. And so, again, I, when, I, when you read this, you're seeing three. There's, there's three. The church confesses the Trinity to be a mystery beyond the comprehension of man. You can't understand the Trinity, according to Alpha and Omega Ministries, a group of apologetics. The lay evangelism, lay evangelism website says Christian theologians have said, deny the Trinity, and you'll lose your soul. Try to explain it, and you'll lose your mind. Now, I'm not interested in either one of those. They go on to say, I quote, the Bible teaches us plainly that there's only one God of one essence from eternity past who's manifest in three individual persons who have independent intellect, emotion, and will. Three individual persons who have independent intellect, emotion, and will. When I read this, I read three. I understand three. I see three. And so, I guess it's just a mystery. You can't understand it. But that flies in the face of what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. If you want to know who Jesus is, it can be clearly seen. You want to know about the Godhead, it can be clearly seen. Being understood, you can understand who Jesus is. By the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, how he headquartered himself, they are without excuse. They are without controversy. They are without debate. We can consent on all on one thing. Not only can you understand it, you should understand it, and you have no excuse for not understanding it. Jesus is concerned about who we say he is. Jesus is concerned about our understanding of the Godhead. And Paul is writing to the church in Rome and, and, and down through the ages to us today that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead. Paul is saying, you want to understand the oneness of God? You can understand it. It won't take your mind away, and it won't make you be lost. But I tell you what, if you don't understand it, you'll be lost because Jesus said, unless you believe I'm he, you'll die in your sins. And you've got to understand this. We must understand this basic foundational truth. Why? Because the church is built on an understanding of who Jesus is. So we're going to go through, we're not going to go through all these tonight. We won't make it through all these tonight. Um, but we're going to start our journey. 
And we're going to go through four scriptural principles about the Godhead. We're, what are we trying to do? We're trying to understand what does the scripture say. If I've got a group over here saying it's a mystery, you can't understand it, but yet I have the word of God saying it can be understood, I want to go with the word of God. And I want to now start to dig deep. The Bible says that it is like a treasure hid in a field. If I have a treasure that's hid in a field, I'm not going to walk to the field Make a pass through it and miss it. No, if there's a treasure hidden in the field, I'm going to have my little uh, uh, metal detector out and my little earphones on. My eyes are going to light up, and I'm going to dig as deep as I need to to get that pop can that I thought was going to be a treasure, but it's just a pop can. I've got a patient. He loves to go uh, when they're tilling up the soil on the on the farmland, and he likes to look for arrowheads. And he's got a collection of arrowheads you would not believe. And it is like he goes out there. He's diligent, and he's he's looking for treasure. And he's got his little trowel with him. And he's he knows he 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 won't tell you where it's at. It's top secret. And we're talking some serious business. But if we're going to understand the treasure that's hidden in the field, we're going to have to dig a little bit. We're going to dig, start digging here. So principle number one that we have to address and understand is God is one. The first principle, the key to understanding everything of the Godhead, the thing which every Christian should agree the without controversy that Paul was writing about is that God is one. There is only one God. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, underline it, star it, circle it. To the Jew... This is the absolute most important portion of Scripture. They would quote this every morning. They would quote this every evening. They'd quote this throughout the, throughout the day. I actually have the, the um, and it just escaped my mind, the little wood post with the, uh, the Shema rolled up on a scroll inside that you can mount to your doorpost and a Jew would leave their house and they would go and they'd see that they would mount them on the doorpost and they would put their hand on it to remind themselves when they went in and when they went out Shema Israel, hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and they would quote this every day and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart with all thy soul, with all thy might. Now I said Deuteronomy 6.4 and five, how many verses do you see there? Two. But to a Jew, that's all one, that's all one sentence. It's all one run-on. That's all one verse. So they would quote it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. They did not, they understood that this is the greatest, most important understanding. Now, in Mark chapter 12, Go to New Testament for a moment. In Mark chapter 12, we find Jesus trying to get trying to get cornered, trying to uh, get um, put on the spot. And they come when the scribes come to him, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he has answered them well, asked him, "Which is the first commandment of all?" Jesus does not hesitate. He does not have to sit here and, and think about it, which is an amazing thing. There's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. And Jesus, in a moment's time, says, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. This is the most important commandment. This is the thing that you've got to get in your heart. Now, it's interesting because this is Mark's rendering of this occurrence. When Matthew retold this account in Matthew chapter 12, he had Jesus responding. He said, 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And that's, he left it that way. He had them quoting the last part. But Matthew was talking to a primarily Jewish understanding. The Jews would automatically know once they heard, love the Lord your God all your heart, they automatically knew because they had heard, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They knew right away, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. They would call it the Shema. They already knew right away where that was going. But Mark was talking to some, some Romans. and Mark was talking to people that were, that were not uh, privy to the growing up and studying the Torah and did not know the law of Moses and did not have access. And so he said, I'm going to recount the, the whole thing here so that they know what he's talking about, the first of all commandments. The greatest thing for you to understand is that there's one God. So both the knowledge of there being one God and the requirement of loving him with everything that you have makes up the one great commandment. It, it, it's not good enough to simply know there's one God and not love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I guess you could say the opposite is true as well. It's not great, good enough to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but really don't know who he is. Who would you say Jesus is if when he comes to you and says, but who do you say that I am? Yes, your mom and dad said this, and, and, and a preacher said this, and a, a book said this, and, and a, a Sunday school teacher said this, but who do you say that I am? And so I'm not saying it in that way that we just come up and make our own, I'm going to make my own little idea. The reason we have 2,200 different Christian denominations is because of individuals who sit and come in and say, I'm going to put my own little spin on something, my own little flavor on something. No, 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 no. There's The Lord is one way, one truth, one life, one God, one Father, who's above all and through all and in you all. We have to understand that we don't have all of these ideas that we can just, I, who am I <laughs> to sit here and, I think about I think about the Lord when He came down and 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 talked to Job. <laughs> where were you when I flung the stars in space? Where, where were you when I I hung the planets and I just hung them there and I hung the stars? Where where were you, man? Man, Lord, what is man that you're mindful of him? So. We need to understand that the, what God is requiring us and asking of us, of us is that, A, we understand that there's one God and that we love him with everything we have. Now, God is one. So whatever we believe about God, it has to be built on the principle of, that he is one. Now, you can see this partial list. Yes, we're going to go to these scriptures. Because we are trying to build a foundation of our walk with God. And we're trying to build a foundation of a church that is built on a foundation of a revelation of the oneness of God so that the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. And if principle number one is that God is one, we have to start here, and we got to say, is that this the preacher of a new church plant in Mandan saying that God is one? Is that just a fancy book? He, God, is this just some new idea? This is not a new idea. It came from the very beginning. It was it was written written and and and, and talked about. It's in the it's in the the Torah. But we're going to go and talk about Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God. There is none else beside him. Now we're going to go through these scriptures. And you're going to start to see a theme going on here. But I want you to understand when, when Moses was penning the words here, the one that had had communed with God on a mountaintop and whose face shone with the anointing and the light of God's glory and presence. And he sits here and says, you got to know that the Lord's God and there is none else 
beside him. He goes on in verse 39, Know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above, and upon earth beneath, there is none else. You're not going to find anybody else. He's in heaven. He's in earth. And there is this idea of true oneness, true singularity. He's not sharing his glory with anybody else. There is one. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I can just almost picture. Now, we're gonna, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead a little bit here. But I can almost picture God looking around. But God can't look around because he's a spirit. And spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. We're going to get into that. But I'm just saying, I can almost picture God saying, ain't no God. Just me. It's just me. Out in the vast reaches of the farthest part of the universe. Places we can't even go to. I mean, they're, 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 I heard, what was that, uh, what was that, that, that space deal that just passed Mars now. And we're just sending things out. And God's like, no, it's just me up here. It's just, I'm, I'm by myself in this power. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 22. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee. Neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. We go to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 60. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 60. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. We'll go to 1 Chronicles 17.20. Old Lord, there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Let's go to Nehemiah 9.6. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, all things that are therein, the sea, all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worships thee. Psalm 86.10 For thou art great, and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Isaiah 37, 16. Hope this is okay. Just going, just going through some scripture. The entrance of your words brings light. Isaiah 37, 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwells between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Isaiah 46 and 9. Isaiah 46 and 9. Oh, man, I love Isaiah 45 and verse 21 and verse 22. Oh, look unto me, be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Isaiah 46 and 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Then we go to Malachi 2.10. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have, not, have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? So we've got all the Old Testament witness of God being one. God being one. Um, and 
Now we're going to go into the New Testament. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 and verse 32. The scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. John 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Romans chapter 3 and verse 30. Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered and sacrificed unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then finally, James chapter 2 and verse 19. Anybody know what James 2 19 says? The devils believe, they know there's one God, and they tremble. And so, we have this and this is just a partial list. There are so many other scriptures. One God, one God. There is one. So we have to understand principle number one, that there is one God and God is one. Now, principle number two, we're going to set some framework tonight and next week in father-son verbiage. We have to understand scripture says there's one God. So, there can't be a God the Father person and the God Son person. That would be bitheism. That's two gods. And there can't be a God the Father person, a God the Son person, and a God the Holy Ghost person, because that would be tritheism. That would be three gods. So, how do we reconcile Father-Son verbiage in the Scripture? We have to understand what this is, and we're going to start that tonight. So, identifying the Father. John 4.24. Let's turn there. John 4.24. God is a spirit. Everybody say spirit. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, this is Jesus talking. If anybody ought to know who God is, and anybody ought to know how to explain God, explain the God, it ought to be Jesus, and Jesus says that God is a spirit, and that that definition of God being a spirit goes far beyond, is more important than any modern theologian or any scholar that would try to identify, the Lord is making a very strong statement here saying that God is a spirit. Say it with me again. God is a... We have to understand this. And so according to Jesus, the one God of the Bible that we talked about last principle, that one God of the Bible is a spirit. Let's go back. Let's go back. Who do you say that I am? It matters who you say that Jesus is because it is the bedrock we built our church upon that pushes against the gates of hell. It matters because if I don't believe that Jesus is who he is, then I can be lost and die in my sins. It matters because I need to know that there is no controversy. There's a consent among all the early believers, and there's a consent among believers, true believers today. So i got to know what that consent is. And then it also matters because Paul said that you can understand and clearly see his eternal power and Godhead, and you have no excuse for not seeing it. So what does that mean if I don't see it right away? Well, it's not for me to understand. 
you guys just aren't smart enough. I'm just going to keep it here for the ministry. Only us preachers can know this stuff. No! <laughs> no! The Word of God's written for all of us. And so it's clearly seen by you. It's clearly understood by you. And if you and me can clearly understand it, then we can be saved and have ourselves built on a solid rock. But if we don't understand it, we ought not just say, well, it's too hard to understand. It's just too chaotic. It's just too confusing. There's too many voices. Drown out the voices. Let the Word of God speak. Let the Word of God be the one that tells you this is what it is. So, so Jesus said God is a spirit. And so he defines that. He never said God is three persons. He never even said God is a person. He said God is a spirit. Now we go back to verse 23. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In truth. So from the context of John chapter 4, we see that the spirit that we call God was identified by Christ as the Father. The spirit that we call God was identified by Christ as the Father. God is the one that must be worshipped in spirit. And God is the one that must be worshipped in truth. And so it's very obvious that when Jesus was speaking of God, he was speaking of the Father. God the Father is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Anytime we read the Father, we should immediately think about the definition of the Father. He's God as a spirit. Okay, hang, hang, hang with me. Hang with me. Tie a knot in the end of your rope and hang on. The only thing that's going to be tough is we're not going to finish this in one night. <laughs> don't, 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 don't. Well, listen, you want to come to the right conclusion? I'm going to be preaching from the word of God. So go home and study it. You're going to come to the same conclusion I did. Joshua, Naomi, y'all pay attention. So now we have the, the father. You have the father who is a, the spirit. And when, when we read about the father, we should immediately think spirit. Now, this fact destroys this Trinitarian perception of who the father is. The father cannot be the first person in the Godhead because he's not a person at all. He is a spirit. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? First Samuel chapter 15. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man. Is God a man? No. Scripture says God's not a man. God is a spirit. In John chapter 4, verse 23, when Jesus is talking, he talks about the Father. He puts that term on who we call God as a spirit. We're following along. You're, you're, you're picking up what I'm laying down here, right? Now, people say, well, I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I love Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 are some of the most powerful scriptures in all of the word of God. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake to prophets in time past, who now, who now has spoken. this? We're not going to get another, another revelation of how to be saved. We're not going to get a, a new way to, to, to be saved. Jesus has, has sealed that. We have be repent of our sins, be baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. But it says, who be the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made himself purge our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That word, and you can go into your Bible, you can go into uh, Blue Letter Bible Online, you can go into, go Google, go Google the word hypostasis. Some will say hypo, like H-Y-P-O, some will say hypostasis, H-U-P-O. It's a Greek word, and it means essence, nature, or being. 
You can pull up the original Greek on Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and it is hypostasis, essence, nature, or being. So the KJV translators put it in his person. Were they trying to be cruel and unusual? No, no, they weren't. I don't know what they did. They just, just chose a, not the best way to define that word, hypostasis. Now you look at the NASB, exact representation of his nature. The ESV, exact imprint of his nature. The NLT expresses the very character of God. They all say the same thing. The issue is it expresses his essence, his nature, his being. Why? Because God is a spirit. God is not a person. God is a spirit. Now, God the Father is omnipresent. Omnipresent means he's everywhere at the same time. Now, you can read Isaiah 66, Psalm 139, Jeremiah 23. They're going to speak of the omnipresence of God. I love the psalm, where can I go from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I ascend up to heaven, you're there. It's speaking of the omnipresence of God. Now, he's everywhere at the same time. So God the Father, God is a spirit. And God is looking for those true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. It says in 23 that the Father seeketh such to worship him. So what we say is God is a spirit. We can call him Father. We can call him God. God the Father is omnipresent. He's immortal. He's everlasting. He can't die. He's invisible. He cannot be seen. Now, this is important to understand because when, when the Lord parted the waters of the Red Sea, the scriptures speak of the blast of God's nostrils. Did God have nostrils? No, because God is a spirit. And a spirit doesn't have nostrils or flesh or blood or bones or a heart or blood vessels. So what does that mean? It's, and this is, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's important for us to understand that it is a, it is a anthropomorphism attaching some, something that we can understand that, man, God came down and blew those waters away. That doesn't mean he came down. It says the, the finger of God came and began to scribe on those tablets the first time. The big finger come down. No, God is a spirit. God the Father is a spirit, and he's everywhere, and he cannot die, and he's everlasting, he's invisible, he can't be seen. But so how do I, I just got to put it in the way I can understand it, he, a finger came down. Oh, I'm going to throw you for a loop right at the end here. Right at the end, I'm going to throw you for a loop. The right hand of God. Does God have a right hand? God is a spirit. What's right hand mean? Right hand's a position of power, a position of authority. That's why he said, the lambs, the sheep will come on my right, and the goats and those that I reject will go on my left. It's a position of power and authority. So the one God of the Bible, the Father, is a spirit. We have to understand this, and we have to uh, understand that he is a, a spirit. None of these aspects of God, the omnipresence, the immortality, the invisibility, are applicable to a person. Persons can't be everywhere at one time. You're there, which means you're not there. I can see you. <laughs> you're not invisible. It's not, like, it's not like these kids when they're real, real little and play hide and seek and they do this, they think they're disappeared. You know, you got the kid, you got the kid, you know what I'm talking about, right? You got the kid in the little car carrier, you put the, the, the little nappy over his face like, oh, they're gone, wow, wow, no, no. We, we, we're, we're persons and we can't be invisible. I've always thought, I've always thought like, would I, as a kid, you know, would I rather be invisible or be able to fly? I thought, why can't I be invisible and fly? You know, but I uh, just always pondered that. But the one God of the Bible, the Father, is a spirit. So, 
No, we're, we still got it. We're, we're going to stop tonight. We're going to stop tonight. But we still got to get through the son was born of a woman and was therefore flesh. Because we've got to define father-son terminology here. We've got to understand. We've, we've talked about when I read the father in Scripture, what's that? It's talking about God and God's a spirit. And then how many gods are there? There's one God. And so then we're start talking about, we're going to be introducing, but it talks about the son. So who's Jesus? We still got to understand who Jesus is. Is Jesus God the Son, a second person in a trinity? Which, by the way, the doctrine came up in 325 AD, 300 years after the start of the church is where that doctrine originated. Actually, it didn't originate there. You know where the doctrine of the trinity originated? Tower of Babel. Nimrod. The Babylonian spirit worshiping a moon and a goddess and that whole idea of 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 Nimrod supposedly he he was going to be killed but he came back to life i think he was supposedly supposed to be killed by a boar on a on a hunting trip wild boar got him and uh, supposedly raised from the dead but then his wife a queen very wicked had a son and so this whole uh woman holding her child, all this that we see a lot around Christmas time, the nativity, actually stems from Babylon. So this idea of a Trinitarian doctrine, it was it was comes from Babylonish teaching, but it was it was structured at 325 AD Council and I see a 300 years after the over 300 years after the start of the church. So so we're gonna get into the son was born of a woman, was flesh. And then, and then just to give you a little, just a little glimpse, just a little glimpse, you might want to study 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. I'm not the cat out of the bag, because I just can't keep it any longer. There's one God. <laughs> As you stand to your feet tonight, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. By the time we conclude with this series, we're all going to begin rejoicing with a new, uh, just, uh, uh, we ought to love the truth of God's word. There is one God. And there is a revelation that pushes back the powers of hell. We're so blessed and privileged. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that your word is able, Lord, to, to change our hearts and our minds. And, Lord, we pray, God, that you would just touch us as we leave this week. God, I pray you keep your hand of mercy and protection on us. And I pray, Lord, that you bring us back at the appointed time. And I ask you, Lord, as we go through these scriptures in our own personal devotion, God, that we would study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Lord, help us cut it straight, Lord. We want to be pleasing in your eyes. We love you tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.